Second Corinthians, New Testament epistle, Second Corinthians chapter seven. Again, reading in verse eight. Now the Corinthian church was carnal, babes in Christ, immature spiritually, at least, if not other ways. They had a lot of trouble. Paul couldn't wait to get out of there. They weren't pleasant to deal with. And he wrote them two letters, and they're both long and deal with a lot of problems. And he got ready to fuss at them. And so uh, with that background in mind, let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. For though I made you sorry with the letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. At first he thought, well, maybe I was too mean. He kind of took it back, and then he realized, hey, it was right, and he didn't repent anymore. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Um, making somebody sorry is not something to apologize for. Sometimes you need to. Now, that can be tricky, and that can be touchy, and there can be situations where you go too far. But just because you made somebody feel mean is not something to apologize for all the time, necessarily. He saw that he made him sorry, but it was only for a season. It was There was no lasting damage done for him. It was temporary. Uh, temporary sorriness, temporary sorrow, is often real good for you. It shows, oh, yeah. you, it shows you a way that you need to correct your course. But it doesn't do any damage. Verse 9, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, Yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge, in all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. I want to preach uh, this evening sorrow for sin. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll help us to understand some things about sorrow. I pray that you help us to understand some things about your word and how the teaching and preaching of your word brings about a type of sorrow. And it's real sorrow. And it's uh, a disappointment. And it is heartbreaking sometimes. But it's a temporary heartbreak. And it's not one that causes lasting damage the way the sin and sorrow of the world does. And I pray, Lord, that we'd understand the difference tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to say tonight that part of a right relationship with God must be sorrow because we sin. You can't be a sinner and God be holy and you and him have a relationship, and sorrow for your sin not come up. That's bound to happen. If you're a sinner, he's holy, and y'all are trying to have a relationship, your sin is going to come up. And Amen. sorrow for your sin is going to come up. So Paul says that he does not repent or wish he could take back the sorrow that he caused the Corinthians. For this reason, it's a godly sorrow. Now, we live in a day of positive religion. Uh, people will say, I don't need that kind of negativity in my life. Well, you need some negativity in your life, for sure. 
because you're a sinner. Whenever all you want is positive, 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 you must think you're pretty close to perfect, perfect, perfect. But if you realize you're a sinner, I'm talking to the point that you sin some in your thoughts or words or actions every day, then sorrow needs to be a fairly regular part of your life. But not the damaging kind. Not the kind that beats you down, depresses you, and hurts you long term. It's the temporary kind. The kind that helps you make course correction. The kind that leads to what the Bible calls repentance. That's a different kind. And we'll be looking at the, at the differences tonight. Now, Bible believers remember that the Bible is mostly negative where it comes to men and women. Amen. And girls. It is mostly negative. Now, it's all positive when it comes to God, but it's all ne or mostly negative, at least, where it comes to us. So we're not going to talk about godly hope tonight, although that's a great thing, or godly success, or godly triumph, or godly comfort. As blessed as all these things are, we're going to talk about godly sorrow. Now, think for a moment what would cause a sorrow before God that would lead to a sincere repentance. That's the, that's the kind of sorrow we're looking for. That's the kind of sorrow that needs to happen sometimes. There's only one. Only a true conviction of wrongdoing. Get good at seeing in the Bible where you are wrong so you can make right the parts that you're wrong on. I am not saying that everything is all you and everything is all your fault. If you're married, your spouse is human too, and let me tell you something, they're at least half your problem. <laughs> if you have children, they're human too, and they're a significant part of your problem. If you have neighbors that are humans, they're a significant part of your problem. If you have countrymen, that are humans, they're a significant part of your problem. There are a million problems here. I'm not trying to put it all on you. But you can't control all those people. Amen. And you'll just beat your head against a wall or I started to say pull your hair out, but I don't even feel like using that one. You'll frustrate yourself badly if you sit and wish and worry about everybody else and the stuff they've got wrong. Oh yeah. Furthermore, the best influence you can be on other people to get their stuff right is not you yelling and puffing at them. Although, once in a while, that is helpful. The best thing is for you to get your stuff right as an example to them. Now, that's the best first step. I don't mean that you don't ever confront them. Sometimes confrontation is necessary. This is one of those times. Paul does confront the Corinthians, and it did help. So I'm not saying never do it, but make sure the emphasis in your life is on getting you right. You'll be busy enough with that, won't you? Can you imagine if it was your job to get yourself right and your spouse right and your kids right and your neighbors right and all the people in your church right and the people in your town right? Oh, oh, buddy. I'm getting tired just even thinking of that. I don't even want to take care of me and one other person too much. There's some people I love that are close to me and I'll help all I can. But to think I had the 100% full responsibility of them, that'd be exhausting. So it's only true conviction of your own serious wrongdoing that'll be the kind of sorrow that will lead to repentance. Now to affect godly sorrow in a sinner, the message of God has to be heard and received as true. 
The devil realizes this, and that's why he is cast out on the Word of God from day one. First words in his, out of his mouth in the Bible is, Yea, hath God said. Amen. He starts questioning what God says in a positive way. As far as we know, nobody had asked him a question, and still the first word out of his mouth was, Yay. Like they teach you in salesman school, get nodding and smiling and happy, and that will encourage them to buy more stuff from you. They got that from the devil who is smiling and nodding and happy and positive to be able to trick you into sinning. Look out for those things. But uh, the message of God has to be heard as true by a sinner, so he is honestly convinced that he did wrong. Submitting to the truth is what you're looking for, not just hearing accusations. Now, godly sorrow for sin is not in itself salvation. Once in a while, somebody gets convinced of their guilt, and that is a good, significant, important step toward salvation. But that is not salvation. Salvation is when you receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Just being sorry for your sin is not doing that. But boy, is it a step that creates momentum that makes that a lot more likely. As long as you have somebody... I don't think I did anything wrong. They are not about to get saved. But you find somebody sorry for their sin, you find somebody hitting what we used to call in the old days the mourner's bench. They may not be saved yet, but they're sort of headed that direction, aren't they? So sorrow for sin is a great thing. So let's see what we can learn from the Bible about this godly sorrow that we might understand and recognize it better. First of all, let's refute the errors about it. There, there are some there are some uh, misunderstandings about sorrow for sin. Uh, first of all, this idea that just having sorrow of mind is repentance. Sometimes some people are just sorry they got caught. Sometimes some people are just sorry they lost a relationship, lost a job, lost a car, lost whatever, lost some money, and they're sorry, and they do admit, yeah, I was wrong there, but they haven't actually repented. If they got another chance to do it again, they'd do it again. All right, so just being sorry and even admitting you were wrong is not repentance. Repentance comes when you change your mind and say, I'm not going to be that kind of person anymore. I'm not going to do that again. That's, that's more along the lines of repentance. However, while sorrow of mind is not in itself repentance, it is a necessary step toward repentance. You're not going to repent without some sorrow. As long as you are so excited that you made that money by stealing it from that other person, you're not on the road to repentance. <laughs> as long as you are so excited that you committed that sin, you're not about to repent of it. People who repent are almost always, or as far as I know, always are sorry for their sin. Amen. So there's not going to be repentance without sorrow. However... Though it is crucial and though it does need to be in place, some people overemphasize that and say, oh, you've got to be in the depths of despair. You've got to hit rock bottom. You've got to reach a point of what the old timers called wretchedness. No, you do not. If you get sorry for your sin, you can go ahead and repent right then long before you hit rock bottom. So yes, sorrow for sin is important. Sorrow for sin is a part of repentance. 
But don't think you just need to wallow in it, bathe in it, hit the rock at the bottom of the thing, and totally wreck your life, and then finally you'll turn around. You can do it before then. I will admit there have been some poor, sorry souls that had to hit it before they wised up, but you don't have to do that. You can repent long before then. They think they've got to hit horrors before they uh, sorrow to repent. No, you don't have to hit terrors and horrors and all these things. Some people say, you know, church is a positive place. Church is so positive, this sorrow for sin, this old-fashioned, this has no place in church. Um, yes, it does. Have you, ever, have you ever read the Bible? People were sorrowing and mourning over their sins, Old and New Testaments. If you face a judgment with a holy God, of course there will be some sorrow. That doesn't need to be all of your Christian life, but that should certainly be part of Amen. your Christian life. Let's review the reasons. When you sinned, did you not break a perfect law? God's perfect law is, is not the law given by God. Uh, it's a pure law. It's a perfect law. Uh, furthermore, he gave us the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't trusted the Lord as your Savior, you've disobeyed a gracious gospel. Amen. Uh, furthermore, we've grieved a good, glorious God. When you sin, is God pleased with that? No, you've grieved him. You've disappointed him. In some cases, broken his heart. And what kind of a God is he? Good and righteous and holy and glorious. Uh, yeah, if you're doing stuff like that, of course you should sorrow. We've slighted Jesus in his tender love. Who in the world is more loving than Jesus? Who in the world sacrificed more for us than Jesus? Who in the world should we be more sorrowful about displeasing than Jesus? Amen. Of course sorrow should be part of church. Of course sorrow should be part of your worship. How about this? Has the Lord been good to us? Amen. Have we not been ungrateful for bountiful oh. blessing every time we sin against our God? How about here in the United States of America? We got a little money. We got a little freedom. Tonight, if you feel like Mexican, couldn't you go get Mexican? Yeah. Tonight, if you felt like listening to one kind of music, couldn't you listen to that? If you feel like watching a ball game or a romance movie or an action movie or a, anything you want, you can pretty much do it. Oh, yeah. How about Tennessee? Are we not economically booming way more than most states, even in this rich country? <laughs> you know what we've been done? We have been taken care of well. Oh, have we yeah. sinned against the God that's making things work out like that? Have we not been surrounded by people that love us, most of us, from the time we were born? Oh, yeah. You know how many people have never experienced the kind of love that most of the people in here have experienced? And yet, we've sinned against the God that's being that good to us. Isn't that kind of ungrateful for a bountiful blessing? Sure it is. Yes, sorrow should be a part of our religion, of our worship, of our church. We've been foolish to lose the spirit fellowship. Doesn't the Bible talk about grieving the spirit of God? Mm -hmm. Who's been more precious in bringing more peace to your middle, <laughs> to your inwards, to your heart, and to your belly? place where you feel those fearful emotions. 
Who's been more peaceful to that than the Holy Spirit of God? And yet, have we not sinned and grieved Him? Basically run Him off from our lives when we sin sometimes? Sure we have. So yes, sorrow is fitting. Uh, one other that I, may, I need to mention. I'll tell you an error that we need to refute is that sorrow for sin or what the psychiatrists call guilt is in some way bad for you. The famous psychiatrist Freud, Sigmund Freud, told this. He said, oh, yeah, the problem is guilt. That's the problem. We need to get rid of the guilt. Well, I agree with him there, but I disagree with how he wanted to get rid of the guilt. He said, keep sinning and just stop feeling guilty about it. I say, no, God gives us the guilt. Dad used to say that a uh, few things are more healthy for a person than a good guilt trip. Amen. <laughs> but it needs to have the right effect, doesn't it? And... Uh, this world likes to teach that you need to get rid of the guilt or the sorrow for sin. It's bad for you. No, it's good for you. All right, now it talks about um, worldly sorrow, the sorrow of the world in verse 10. It talks about godly sorrow in verse 10. So for the second point, let's contrast godly sorrow and the sorrow of the world. Now godly sorrow is what it sounds like. Godly sorrow. It's sorrow that arises from godliness. If I looked up godliness, it means obeying, loving, and fearing God. The sorrow of the world is unrelated to God. It might have something to do with um, your team didn't win the ball game. You were disappointed and didn't get the promotion that you wanted. You lost some money that you had. You lost a sweetheart. You lost anything that doesn't have anything to do with God. That's godly sorrow versus sorrow of the world. Basically, uh, you could categorize it this way, and the Lord Jesus does. Sorrow of the world comes from the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things. All right, uh, here's another difference between godly sorrow and the sorrow of the world. Godly sorrow comes from the goodness of God. God, being good to you, sends you some sorrow. I know that doesn't make sense to our overly oh, positive world. <laughs> but God sees, you know what? He's going on. He's messing up. I'm going to send him some sorrow so he won't keep going that way. Despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. And what did we already establish leads you to repentance? Godly sorrow. So God in his goodness sends some sorrow your way to get you to repent, because it's good for you. The sorrow of the world comes from shame, consequences, disappointment, and sin. That's the difference between godly sorrow and sorrow of the world. Godly sorrow is sorrow for sin committed against God. Let me read to you from Job 42. Now Job, as I've said before, is one of the great characters in the Bible. In my opinion, he's second only to Jesus. He is way up there. Amen. Him and the Lord were close. In Job uh, 42, toward the end of his uh, ordeal, he says this. He says, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. You know what Job saw? He said, I see you now. And now that I see you, I do see some errors in myself I couldn't see before. 
The old timer said the best way to see how crooked a stick is is draw a straight line beside it. If you want to see how crooked you are and you got convinced you're pretty straight, just open up this Bible and look at God and then you'll see, oh, man, I am pretty crooked. And that's what it took for Job. He was, I'll grant you, comparatively speaking, Job was something else. Oh, yeah. Compared to God, oh, now I abhor myself, he said. <laughs> Psalm 51, verse 3, when David fell into his sin with Bathsheba, you only said, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this wickedness in thy sight. So godly sorrow comes from realizing you committed a sin against God. Sorrow from the world is for evil against yourself or against mankind. No God. There is such a difference between godly anything and worldly anything. And the big difference is God. Amen. The world is not concerned with God. Godly sorrow leads to a complete change of mind, repentance. We preached recently on Zacchaeus. He said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. But if you get a rich man to say that, he has repented. He's changed oh his mind, hasn't he? But the sorrow of the world doesn't lead to that. It leads to one of two things. Either hardening of the heart or despair of the heart. You know what we have in our day? We have a lot of people with hard hearts or despairing hearts. They either are angry that somebody hasn't given them everything they feel they deserve or they're despairing and giving up and just trying to drown their sorrows and whatever their drug of choice may be, whatever their distraction of choice may be, whatever gets their mind off of their troubles. How's your heart, Christian? I know us saved people aren't supposed to fall into these things, but we're still flesh. We still have an old man that we fight. And the old man in us can harden his heart. And the old man in us can just give up on God. Oh, yeah. God help us when he sends some sorrow to actually repent and change our mind. Because it says godly sorrow worketh repentance. All right, I'll tell you something else about godly sorrow. It leads to perseverance in God's ways. I said for a long time that one of the biggest disappointments in my life was seeing Christians a decade or two down the road quitting on God. You know what happened? Life got easy. In many cases, life got easy and the discipline necessary to keep living for God was gone. Godly sorrow, though, leads to perseverance in God's ways. Bob Jones Sr. used to say that if you didn't take a horse and have it go on rocky roads and smooth roads and uphill and downhill and through woods and through fields and on roads and off of roads, and he said if you didn't take it through all those places, it didn't develop some of the muscles it needed to develop. How many of you have ever... Um, done a new exercise and you found some muscles you didn't know you had. I'll never first forget the first time I went roller skating. I, I used some muscles I had never used. I had never been roller skating before. When I woke up the next morning, whoa, boy, did I have a hard time walking. 
um, when I get a new chair and sit in that chair and have to hold my back up and hold myself up in a di little different position than I'm used to holding myself up in, guess what? All of a sudden, I'm sore in some places I didn't used to be sore in. I've had to learn some new things. And godly sorrow leads to perseverance because you're developing muscles to handle all kinds of different things. And therefore, you get strong. And therefore, some young person coming through something, you've been through that like they have, or, or like they are going through. And you can actually be a blessing and help to them. But boy, if all you ever have is smooth roads and you start trying to coach somebody on going up hills, you can't do it. The sorrow of the world leads to death. It just fails. The sorrow of the world worketh death. All right, now let's notice the results of godly sorrow. Let's see the results of godly sorrow. Verse 11, it says here, Behold this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves. So the first thing I'll say about the results of godly sorrow is carefulness and clearing. We live in a day where people don't want to be careful anymore. I remember when I was growing up, all the care and um, concern that people had about testimonies. They would take a long time before they went and just shopped for clothes because they wanted to be sure they had a good testimony by the clothes they wore. They would be careful before they listened to the radio in front of people because they wanted to be careful about the testimony it had. They would be careful before they were watching something because they wanted to be careful about the testimony it had. They wanted to be careful even when nobody was around because they didn't want to offend God. I remember people talking about that. Now, I, I understand that there's a ditch on both sides of the road. And sometimes all you ever do is talk about what you're wearing, what you're watching, and what you're listening to, and you start to get self-righteous about it. Oh, yeah. That is true. That does happen. That is a ditch on one side of the road. The other side of the road has this ditch. Who cares what you do? Just anything goes. That's not a good place to be hey. either. Number one, you start offending God. Number two, you start leading some other people astray. You say, how can that lead them astray? That doesn't bother me. Not all of us are the same. I've often said, you can put a six-pack of beer in my refrigerator, and I truly wouldn't touch it. What few sips of beer I've had over the years tasted so bad that I have no interest in it. It would sit in there and rust, if you chained it in there and I couldn't get it out. But you know what? I still don't want to put a pack of beer in my refrigerator. <laughs> Even though I would never touch the stuff. Because somebody else might see it and they would have a problem with it. It ain't all about me. Think about how you affect other people. carefulness. When godly sorrow came, all of a sudden they got real careful. There have been spouses who got contacting through social media or through their phones uh, ex-boyfriends or girlfriends and their husband or wife found those messages. <laughs> and they did not want to lose their marriage. 
You know what they did? They got careful. I hope that means they got careful about not doing it, not careful about hiding it better. I don't know. <laughs> if you're on social media, I don't know how to help you anyway. But uh, nevertheless, carefulness. Now, let me tell you something. If you have offended a holy God and he sent some sorrow for it, you know what? You get careful about it. You don't want to keep offending him if it's a godly sorrow. Carefulness and clearing of your... Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. There are many things that affect our heart. Oftentimes it's the thing we look at. There's an actual verse in the Old Testament prophet that says, Mine eye affecteth my heart. Did you know what you sit and look at and sit and stare at? Oh, yes. You will develop an affection for they, they got studying eye contact between people and how much closer friends are that get a lot of eye contact and, and people that are dating, how much more intimate they got more quickly if it's a bunch of eye contact. And so they started doing experiments and had people just sit across from the table and just look in each other's eyes. <laughs> it was the craziest thing. Four or five of them ended up getting married and they didn't even know each other from nothing but eye contact. Isn't that the wildest, craziest thing? Here's my point. What you sit and look at, you start getting some affection for. There are people that put, in the old days, before we had pictures everywhere, we put pinups of the Hollywood starlets of their day because they just love looking at that. Other people would get their favorite athletes and get these big pinups, these big posters, sit in their rooms and just look at that and dream of being that one day. And look at the rock stars and the country stars and they had these big posters of them. They just sit there and look at it. I'll tell you another one, what you listen to. Plato, no less than Plato, says, let me write the songs for a country. I care not who writes its laws. You know why? Because he knew whoever was writing their music had their heart. Who cares who has their brain? You've got somebody's heart, you're going to lead them around. You, they're going to make decisions based on what they love more than what they think. How many of us don't know that? So you be careful with that heart. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Another good verse on these things is avoid the appearance of evil. Carefulness and clearing came from godly sorrow. Here's another good one. Indignation and fear. When you see what the devil's trying to do to you, when you see the people trying to trip you up and mess you up in your life, your marriage, your friendships, your church, your ministries, your business, all the different facets of life, it'll make you mad. If you knew that I was coming over to your house with bad intentions to hurt your family or steal your stuff, wouldn't you have a gun there ready to meet me? You know what? The devil has those kinds of intentions about you and your body and your friends and your relationships and your money and your health and everything. You ought to be mad at him. A lot of us get along with the devil way too good. We realize he isn't exactly right. But we don't hate him like we need to. We don't Amen. hate sin like we need to. We don't hate this whole flesh like we need to. Amen. We don't hate the world system like we need to. It's out to hurt you and hurt you bad. It ain't just trying to beat you in arm wrestling. It's trying to take you out. And we don't see that. Why? 
because it's subtle. And a lot of times we're friendly, and God, we thank God that we are friendly in many ways. But let me tell you something. We also need to remember there's a spiritual battle out there, and we got enemies that are trying to mess us up. And they're trying to mess us up bad. So what did what came from this godly sorrow in verse 11? Well, first of all, carefulness and clearing. Secondly, indignation and fear. You ought to be scared. When there's somebody trying to hurt you that bad, yeah, you ought to be mad, but you also ought to be a little bit scared. If you're in a good, hard fight with somebody, it helps if you're a little angry, but it also helps if you're good and scared. You'll be a little more careful. You'll guard your face a little better if somebody's there trying to hurt you and trying to hurt you bad. Fear. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Let us serve our God with reverence and godly fear, the Bible says. All right, verse 11 says not only carefulness and clearing, not only indignation and fear, but here's one. Vehement desire and zeal. Vehement desire. That means you feel something. One of the problems that I have seen over the course of my life, and I'm only in my 50s, is this. In church, I don't see the feeling they used to have. I mean, the people used to cry way more, shout oh, yeah. way more, change their lives, come to the altar, and their lives change way more. Plenty of times, I remember people getting up from down here praying, and the floor was wet. That used to happen a whole lot more when I was a little boy growing up. We don't feel like we once did. The Bible warns about people that are beyond or they're past feeling. I'm scared that we're getting there. But godly sorrow, you know what it does? It brings some vehement desire and zeal. What's zeal? Action producing sincerity. You mean business about something to where you do it. Now, Let's all be honest here. There are some things that we kind of hope happens, but we're not actually going to get up and you know, make it happen. If every single thing in the world we kind of wish happened, we got up and made it happen, we'd be a lot more active. As a matter of fact, we'd have to be up awake 24 hours a day. That's a lot to buy off and try to do. But there ought to be some things that we get busy for. They're so important to us, we actually raise up a we actually get going. That's that zeal. The Bible talks about vehement desire. It says, have fervent charity among yourselves. Fervent charity. Fervent is close to the word fever. You feel something. An action producing sincerity or zeal. But then it really goes far. Look at this last one in the results of godly sorrow. Not only carefulness and clearing, not only indignation and fear, not only vehement desire and zeal, but look at this word. Yea, what? Revenge. I've heard Dr. Rutman give his testimony many a time and get real mad. You see him on the street like Clint Eastwood. <laughs> the, old, the old laughter. And he said, yeah, when it comes to the 27 years, I was deceived and led to hell by a bunch of false teaching. My memory is real good. You know what I started to notice in Dr. Upman? He was wanting some revenge. 
He was wanting to attack back at some people that messed him up, messed up some of his family, and he saw was messing up some people he was trying to minister to. He wanted some revenge. And lo and behold, even vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and I don't recommend you go out there and act and get your revenge yourself, but I believe you ought to hope God gets his revenge on him. And you know what? He will. He will. Now, he won't do it as quick as you wish. I wish I could, boy, I'll tell you, I wish sometimes I could just pray the Lord would do it right then. But he's got, he's got better wisdom than I do, and he knows how to make it all come <laughs> But boy, there's some people in Jordan being in trouble if I get a prayer answer in five <laughs> seconds. <laughs> but God will make it come true. God will make it right. You know what godly sorrow did? It made him want some revenge against the world, against the flesh, against the devil, against false religions. A bunch of people that damned a bunch of souls through some false teaching. That all bothers. Alright, so what have we looked at today? We've looked at sorrow. It is necessary for a right relationship with God. Don't get in your ditch line. Don't get over here to where you think religion has to be all sorrow. Not what I'm saying. Don't get over here and think it doesn't have a significant amount of sorrow. It sure does. You know why? Because we, we got a significant amount of sin. It's necessary for a right relationship with God because our flesh does continue to offend us. But its place is sometimes misunderstood. So we try to dispel some myths about it. Yeah, you need to have sorrow for sin. It will lead to repentance. But you don't have to wait till you hit rock bottom. As soon as you feel some sorrow for sin, that's a real good time. Hey. I'm sorry about that. Let me get right right now. Don't wait until you've spir spiraled down and spiraled down to where you're in a big pit. Don't wait for that. Do it now. Now, by the way, if I am talking to somebody under the sound of my voice that is down in a big pit, go ahead and do it now. But you don't have to wait that long if you're not there yet. Uh, it's copied by worldly counterfeits, so we took some, some time to talk about godly sorrow versus sorrow of the world. Godly sorrow has a positive, constructive end. First of all, it has something to do with God. Secondly, you turn around and start doing right, where with the world, you just harden your heart. Boy, do we live in a day of some angry people with some hard hearts, or some despairing people that just figure, well, nothing will work anyway. Well, you're right, humanly speaking. God Almighty can work some miracles. He certainly does. Uh, also, it's known by its results. So we reviewed them. Now, it's pop not a popular thought, of course, to look ahead to a life of sorrow. But godly sorrow is good for you. Uh, if you decide that you want to get in better health, you know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to go through some periods of sorrow. Sometimes when you want to eat. <laughs> You're going to have to stop eating. Sometimes when you want to sleep, you're going to have to stay up a little longer. Sometimes when you want to get up and do some things, you really need to sleep longer. Sometimes when you want to stop, you're going to need to keep exercising. But guess what? There's health that comes with that. It is worth the little bit of sorrow you go through to do those things. We call that discipline, don't we? And I'll tell you about godly sorrow, it teaches you to hate sin. Yes. It teaches you that sin that is causing this sorrow, that's the problem. 
The problem is not the sorrow. The problem is the sin that caused the sorrow. Freud. Let's don't get rid of the guilt. Let's keep living more and more holy for God so we don't have to feel the guilt near as much. And it should encourage us to walk closely to our holy God and hide his word in our hearts that we might not sin against him. Remember the pledge to the Christian flag we used to do years ago? Hide his word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Amen. That's, that's the importance of godly sorrow. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to read and study your word. Thank you for the truth found herein. And Lord, I pray 